0: So just a couple of footnotes with respect to the topics addressed yesterday, yesterday evening, about what is and what is not visible, what can we actually perceive and what can we not. It's so easy to think that, you know, what's out there is really out there and if you look you'll see it, you know, good straightforward metaphysical realist view which is commonsensical but turns out to be not true. And so when it comes to when it comes to Dzogchen teachings in particular, uh, this is clearly within the Dzogchen and Mahamudra. But ma- Mahamudra there's a version or an approach that is purely Sutrayana. This is directly from uh, Pencha and Penjanamuche. There's a Sutrayana approach in which there's no secrecy about it at all. It's straightforward application of teachings of Madhyamaka. Uh, but then there's also a Vajrayana approach. And as soon as you speak of Vajrayana, then you're speaking of it's called Sangha, or Sangha, so it's secret, a secret mantra, Vajrayana. And so, you know, keeping it quiet. Uh, and just generally, for anybody who received the empowerment here, generally speaking, more broadly, in terms of your Vajrayana practice, and this is the old teachings of the Kadambageshis, keep it private. Keep it private. No reason to talk about it. Uh, if the image itself, I said it's free, well, that's because I'm offering it freely for people who receive the m- empowerment. So you're u- welcome to free- use it freely, but it is a yapyum uh, image of deity and consort, and very easily misunderstood. And so, better you know, not make it public. Uh, not, it, not that it's secret in the sense of like we have a secret. But the people can misunderstand it, and misunderstanding it that can be harmful to them. Well Dzogchen teachings are also famous for the ease with which one can misinterpret them, misunderstand them, and then behave in ways and have views of reality that are really going to be very, very harmful, even though the teachings themselves are not. You hear about how when you're resting in rikpā, beyond good and evil and so forth. Well then that gives some people, they get the, they get the idea, oh, no, now I'm now I'm a now I'm a Dzogchen practitioner, I can just do whatever I feel like spontaneously, because it's all going to be fine, because I'm resting in rikpā. And then they can just, you know, pay their way to hell that way. And so, you know, one needs to show great discretion, about discussing this in public. I feel very confident for the group here. I can't imagine anybody could be here for seven weeks and think this is a license to act any way you like, or realities, whatever you believe, or now there's no reason to practice any other practices. Just rest your awareness and totally relax for the rest of your life. Um, I think the message got through that that's not it. But you can imagine, you know, this is out of seven weeks of teaching, let alone all that you brought with you here. But you can imagine if pu- people take, uh, you know, any of these teachings out of context, it can be very, very misleading, very, very harmful. Uh, So on the one hand, that's to be taken very seriously. And on the other, uh, as Padmasambhava says in the Vajra Essence, there's something kind of special about the Dzogchen teachings, that if you're not ripe for them, that if you don't have sufficient purity for them, if you don't have the kind of karmic momentum to really be able to receive them, even if you're in the same room, Well, this is what he says. Only those who have stored vast collections of merit in many many ways over incalculable eons will encounter this path, this path that he's laying down in these, there's one of the three volumes in the Vajra Essence in particular. So, if you have not stored vast collections of merit over incalculable eons, you will not encounter this path. They will have aspired repeatedly and extensively, the people who have done so, who do have the merit, who do have the momentum, who are ripe, they will have aspired repeatedly and extensively to reach the state of perfect enlightenment, and they will have previously sought the path through other yanas, establishing propensities to reach this path. So here's what he's saying about your past: that you will have already done groundwork in the Shravakayana. You'll already, from past lives, develop bodhicitta, sutrayana very possibly stage of completion. You're coming in very, very full. And so for those who are ripe, then, this is fine. But those are the ripe disciples that come in with a lot of momentum. He said, no others will encounter it. This path, the very, very direct path of Dzogchen, that he's revealing here in the Bhatra Essence, and in all five of the treatises, it's the same message. No others will encounter it. And why not? Although people lacking such fortune may be present where this yana is being explained and heard, because they are under the influence of their negative deeds and the strength of the powerful devious maras of mental afflictions, their minds will be in a wilderness five hundred yojanas away. Yojanas about five miles, so you'll be twenty five hundred miles away, basically in Perth. <laughs> <laughs> like so your body may be in Gimbi, but your mind's gonna be in Perth. You know. And so that's it's called self hidden. The teachings conceal themselves from those who are not ready to, to to receive them. So that's that's that. So that's another thing. It's it's not like sh- it, well, in a way, it's kind of like Shambhala. If you're sufficiently pure, you, there it is. And if you don't have that very very deep purity, there's just no way you're going to see it. Not with a satellite image, not on a camel, not in any way. You have to profoundly, as we as I read and studied carefully, this guide to Shambhala. And I've read a number of them. Um, it's actually quite a profound transmutation of your body and your mind to go there. It's not just mental, as in Vajrayana, it's very, very coupled. The body and mind are both being purified, transformed. Uh, but that is a very relevant point, uh, that for Dzogchen, you know, to the words can be said. It could be even from an extraordinary master like a Dingo Kenzaremba-chi, a and so forth. You could be in the same room, your ears could work, you could speak the same language, and it, you won't get it. You won't get it. It's rather like, you know, the Lama imparting or granting an empowerment. If you're not ready, it's granted, you don't receive it, you know? So that's kind of an important point, very relevant to last night. And then to uh, just very briefly relate this, because I want to get on to the third of the greats. um, The whole theme of what do we, what can we see, just more broadly speaking, this would be very brief, but now we're bringing this in 21st century in very interesting ways. There's quite a well-known um, psychologist, cognitive scientist, by the name of uh, Jerome Bruner. I quoted him in, in my book that I wrote a long time ago when I was at Stanford, in Taboo of Subjectivity. And so he's, you know, mainstream, very astute, quite distinguished cognitive si- scientist, and he writes, "Perception is, to some unspecifiable degree, an instrument of the world as we have structured it by our expectancies." what we expect to see, what do we see, what do we perceive, what becomes evident. It's not just what's there. This is a straight psychologist speaking. It's actually in some kind of mysterious way, unspecifiable way, is determined influence limited by our expectations. Moreover, it is a characteristic of complex perceptual processes that they tend, where possible, to assimilate Whatever is seen or heard to what is expected. So you see an anomaly. You see somebody pull up his shirt and see a bunch of weird scars on his belly. And that's an anomaly. And he tells you, um, yeah, this was a llama who put a stone in the mountain and put the stone on my belly. That's an anomaly. Must be a trick. <laughs> Boy, Alan, really put, a, put, a, put one over on this this time. Wow. But just one way or another. You know, it's... it's now, ha- that has to fit. Uh, um, electric wires, okay, probably, mm, oh, forget about it, and then you, bl- you, you, you pass out. <laughs> it does not compute, uh, <laughs> you go fall asleep. <laughs> so, this is true for everyone, this is true for everyone, scientists, anybody. When we see an anomaly, the natural inclination is to try to squeeze it, contort it, scrunch it, so that it fits our expectations. And if it doesn't, ignore it. It's so uncomfortable to shift worldview. We'll do almost anything to avoid doing that. So there's one. And just one more, and then we'll get on with the main topic for today. And this is from another one. Cognitive scientist J.M. Wilding writes We conclude that the appropriate description for a given input very technical words, is highly dependent on the way the perceiver chooses to process it. I would just add chooses maybe unconsciously, (laughs) you know, but the the way the perceiver chooses to process, which may be qualitatively in the way information is interpreted and the degree to which information in memory is trapped, and quantitatively in the number of features extracted from the stimulus and from information in memory, memory associated with it. That's very academic speech, but I think the gist of it is pretty straightforward. That perception is not so simple. And there was a quote I was looking for, It actually was from Einstein, um, but I couldn't find the exact quote, but I can give a very close paraphrase. And he said, um, it's what we what we believe that determines what we can see. Not just seeing is believing, but in fact if you don't believe something, if you're sure it's not existent, you just may not see it. Even if somebody goes like that, even if there's really clear evidence, you know, for example of continuity of consciousness after death. I know some so many highly intelligent people and there's that, you know, there's that evidence coming out of the University of Virginia. There's the evidence here and here and here and here from, you know, and it's kind of like they just don't see it. They don't refer to it. They don't see it. They They hear about it, and it just, it just, it vanishes from memory. I find it quite astonishing that they just keep on slipping back to what feels comfortable, and that is the mind produces, the brain produces the mind. And any evidence outside that, especially it comes from outside of a scientific context, like from Tibetans or Hindu yogis or Taoists and so forth, cannot see it it's not a lack of intelligence, but these are a lot of smart people. And it's not just because they're scientists, there's nothing wrong with being a scientist. And it's not particularly, specifically because they're materialists, that's just the flavor of the day. This is a human situation. And that is, we lock into a particular perspective, and it can be extremely difficult to break out. Okay, so that's that. To even see any evidence that contradicts one's own beliefs, amazing. And that's for religious and non-religious, for atheists, and so forth and so on. It's true. It's difficult. And the antidote, then, is continue to really attend closely and leave your baggage on the ground as you try to take off and explore new ways of viewing reality. So this morning, then, without further ado, getting back to the mainstream here, uh, the third of the greats, Mahamudita, Mahamudita, and just the first line, you're now very familiar with the flow, but here's just the first line to remind you. SEMSCHIN Tamji, and it's very, very choice, really so precise. SEMSCHIN TAMSCHI Dungal MEPI DEVA MINDEL NA CHIMARUN SEWDWA really amazing. Why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from sublime happiness, free of suffering? It's called devadamba, which I translated as sublime. Damba can be also dundamba, means ultimate. Damba can be ultimate, sublime, sacred, holy, extraordinary, mm, bliss or happiness. Why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from? Eudaimonia, the highest, the highest joy, the greatest happiness, that is utterly devoid of suffering. Why, why not? Why not? And in the context, I mean, it just turned out, this was just a very happy, maybe not coincidence, but blessing, I would say, that right where we are in the text, the practice chapter, I didn't plan this, I planned very little, but right in the practice chapter, right, where you've already gone through and hopefully, and if you've been really keeping up, and this will take some time, obviously, but you've identified, you've recognized your own pristine awareness, and you know what it's like to rest there and view reality from that perspective. So you know this very well. And you know very well this ch- whole chapter now is all designed to encourage us to remain there and to see more and more clearly, not just the nature of pristine awareness, which you would have gotten, you know, this always have greater clarity, but what you have, would have gotten when you first identify pristine awareness, which is to say, pristine awareness sees its own face. Pristine awareness is the only one that can see pristine awareness, right? But now to deepen that, well, of course, as you know well, your practice is one of non-practice. Don't try to increase, don't try to fix it, don't try to make it progress. Just rest there, and then this is what you're likely to see. Not only resting in that original purity, mo kada, that original purity, but seeing the displays of your own mind, seeing them from that perspective, Uh, as just pure effulgences, expressions of primordial consciousness, such that they all rise up to meet you, and that's not only the thoughts and images that come to mind, all of them, but it's also all appearances. This is really the culmination, the full flowering of lojong, the mind training, that without having to try to shift your attitude, you know, shift your attitude, train, train to see all sentient beings as your mothers, train this, train this, now it's kind of like, now it's payday, now it's time like, whoa! now it's just happening, spontaneously. All phenomena, all experiences, actually are, from that perspective, arising to deepen, to enhance, to purify. Your experience not only of rikpa, pristine awareness, but also rikbetzel, all of the creative displays, the creative expressions of rikpet. So you're really, this is where you really start to progress along the path. You've entered the path and now you're really progressing along the path but bear in mind you progress along the path by doing nothing it's like being on a on a raft and getting and dropping into a stream and now what do you do why well, just sit there and the stream will take you to the ocean right you're kind of like a stream enter but this is a Dzogchen stream enter now powerful parallel but only an analogy. But it's so good for starters, and that is that discontinuity. When you're in the midst of a non-lucid dream, and then you see an anomaly, or you meet somebody that says, do you know this is a dream? Or you pull your nose and it breaks off in your hand, you know, just something anomalous, and suddenly, poof, there you are. Okay? It's not something you intellectually figured out, it was not rational, it was not a it was empirical, so you're running a test there. But the point here is you have this discontinuity, and suddenly you're lucid, you're viewing the dream from the waking state. Mm-hmm. So now in classic dream yoga, so a strong parallel, right? In dream yoga practice, and I was just reviewing this, just to make sure I would not make a mistake, uh, reviewing this in Natural Liberation, where there's a beautiful presentation by Padmasambhava of the dream yoga practice. He first tells you how to identify the dream state as a dream state, in preparation for recognizing Rigpa as Rigpa. Uh, but then once you've opened that door, once you've become lucid, then there's, you enter into the second phase. And that is stabilizing the lucidity while also stabilizing the dream itself. You want to, you want the dream to continue. You also want, of course, the lucidity to continue, nilam nilam yimbar recognizing the dream as the dream. You want to do that, but there's more. And that is the next major phase of the dream yoga practice, classic, and it's just everywhere. Uh, All all four schools of Tibetan Buddhism teach this, Uh, is then emanation and transformation. right? And this is really within the context of the dream, seeing experientially, not with reasoning or or, logic, seeing experientially that everything in the dream is malleable, That is, there is nothing there objectively or subjectively in the dream that is there from its own side and therefore impervious to or resistant to the power of conceptual designation. And you you just start emanating. You start transforming yourself in one way or another, emanating yourself, transforming other people, transforming landscapes, transforming location. Transforming events, bigger, smaller, one to many, many to one, and you just, you keep on working until you have seen by a thorough exploration. There's nothing here that (laughs) withstands, nice analogy in, in Madhyamaka, there's nothing here that withstands analysis. Very similar to that. You're not really analyzing, but there is nothing here that withstands, that is still there immutably, like a rock by its own nature, that holds still even when I shift my conceptual designation. Nothing. The whole dream, you can make it vanish, you can make it come, you can make it shift. It's just putty in your hands. It's your story. You write it and you rewrite it any way you like. Like Picasso in that, I think I told you about his this national treasure, which is a film of Picasso painting and repainting and repainting and repainting a canvas. With oil, you can just do it as many times as you like, because the new oil covers the old oil. Even if it was white, it's black. If it was black, now it's white, because oil is a very dense medium, right? And so you, within, you really are the artist. You are the poet. You are the novelist of your dream, and you can see, I can change this any way I like, which means nothing here in the whole dream reality has any existence from its own side whatsoever, and it's not because you're just really smart with dialectics, which is a good thing, but you're doing this completely empirically, right? Now, when you are very quite adept at that, again, coming straight from Padmasambhama, um, then, when you see how thoroughly you can transform your environment, yourself, and everyone in it, then, like some real devoted students of great lamas, one i heard years ago i's like oh maybe 30 years ago she was a very devoted student of Yawang kunampa the 16th uh, but he's a great lama you know and it's hard to have a very close relationship with him he's teaching all over the place and so forth she was living in america and what she said was she would repeatedly receive teachings from him in her dreams you know very possible that's a more advanced state of dream yoga where in the midst of the dream when you seek and change anything then there's a phase for some people, like Stephen LeBerge, very open about this, there's somebody at Harvard, very open about this, he's a dream expert, um, to start having a lot of free sex, with, even with dead people, not as dead people. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's kind of yucky, but, you know, like Marilyn Monroe. I mean, a lot of men have been fantasizing about Marilyn Monroe ever since she died in her prime, you know, and so, yeah, you can, you can have sex with Marilyn Monroe. I'm not quite sure how responsive she'll be but um, so you know so that's kind of a binge that some especially men go on when they see that I can have any babe I want and they just start lining them up you know so you I would suggest get that out of your system as quickly as possible but if you're really practicing Dharma then you know you get through that really quickly and you'll see you can transform (laughs) anything Or maybe not so quickly. I'm not sure where (laughs) all this laughter is coming from. (laughs) what? Oh, I should stop? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you should. Move on, move on, you know. Don't get hung up there, all you rascal people, not telling me about your lucid dreams. Mm. But when you see you can transform anything, and you're really devoted to the path, you can invite your guru, and, rec- and if you have some questions, you can pose them. But also, uh, Guru Rinpoche Padmasambhava specifically states, "Would you like to go to Sukhavati before you die? Well, get into a lucid dream, start purifying it, and then you go to Sukhavati and meet Amitabha and receive teachings from Amitabha." Okay. Now he doesn't say it, but I will say it because it's so obviously true: is that if you have a dream, if you if you if you're dreaming, and the appear and you and there's an, I'm going to use my words very carefully, and there's an appearance of your guru in your dream, be careful, be careful. Uh, There's no guarantee that's your guru. What is a guarantee is that appearance is arising in the space of your own mind, and if your mind is still quite impure, still heavily subject to mental afflictions, then where you, be very careful, where your dream is, your guru is there. I mean, your, your guru's where you are, a guru's right in your thoughts right now. Think of popcorn. Popcorn, popcorn, popcorn. Your guru's right there, thinking popcorn. So not someplace else, right? So when you're dreaming, is your guru there? Is Padmasambhava there? The answer is yes. Will you clearly see him and will you clearly get whatever message Guru Ramaji might have to share with you right now, or will be that so filtered by your own mental afflictions, your assumptions, your hopes, your fears, your junk, that he says one thing and you hear an entirely different one. You know. So, Lama who is an extraordinary siddha, that does this healing that I, sh- I showed you, the, the remnants of the scars. They used to be much more evident. They're now more than two years old. But, you know, five, three months after, these are really, really big scars. They're fading out. It's very interesting. Does that happen normally when you get... It happens just normally? I don't think it thought, didn't think it would be any mystical, but some of these, these were big scars, and now they're just um, fading out one by one. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. So I didn't think it was something special. But in any case, he was so careful when he described how he had gotten the city, because he, he got it on a particular day. He said, I was dreaming, and there was the appearance of Padmasambhava in my dream. He picked me up and put me in a cauldron of flames, like a cauldron of kind of a bonfire. He picked me up and put me inside the cauldron, and I, and I was torched and I was burnt down to fine ash. And then Padmasambhava reached in and pulled me out again and set me down and he said, you have very stable samadhi. And then when he woke up there was this stone and he had the city and he received this city from Padmasambhava. And it's a healing city. But but I so admired, I have only admiration for this lama, just pure as new-fallen snow, quite extraordinary, and a real siddha, Uh, again, nine years in very strict retreat at Samye. Uh, But the care with which he chose, he did not say, and I had a vision of Padmasambhava. He didn't say that. I was dreaming, and there was an appearance of Padmasambhava, and this is what happened and now I can show you what I can do. And he did. I mean, we all saw it, repeatedly, uh, what he could do. And he's been doing this for thousands of people in Tibet and China. So it's a simple word of caution, and that is, if someone appearing in the form of your guru or avalokiteshvara or Padmasambhava, whoever it may be, appears in your dreams, yes, avalokiteshvara, Guru Rinpoche is, is there. Should you take literally everything that person says, should you rely totally on your understanding of what that person said as infallible God's own truth, and be careful, be careful. Even here, where you have an ordinary teacher speaking, but I'm doing my, mess, my best to share with you authentic dharma, you can still misunderstand what I'm saying. There's no guarantee that, w- that you hear what I say. There's no guarantee that your understanding will be what my understanding is when I say something. There's no guarantee of that at all. All we can do is our best, but it's always filtered, configured, strained, edited, and so forth. And that's just true, as we saw from these two cognitive psychologists. We hear what we can hear, we hear what we expect to hear, we see what we expect to see, and we configure and we tweak whatever we see and hear in accordance with our own predilections, our background, expectations, beliefs, assumptions, and so forth. So communication is not so straightforward. I wish it were, then I could just say, oh, I said it, they all, they all got it. You know, I speak for an hour and a half, you got it now, right? So I don't need to repeat anything, because you you got it, I downloaded it. At the same time, Padmasambhava is quite serious. You can, in fact, go to su- Sukhavati, meet your guru and so forth in dreams, and that is an advanced state of dream yoga. Now there's one, but, here I want to draw a strong, strong, con- uh, a strong distinction and that is this practice, the practice chapter, where you're just resting in rikpā and you're doing nothing, you continue to, to not do anything but just rest in rikpā and view reality from that perspective, you're not experimenting. Right? When you're doing that practice, you're not trying to modify this, you're not trying to go to a pure land, you're not trying to find your guru, and so forth and so on. No, the practice remains just not doing. right? And what he's saying is this is, this is what you'll see, this, it primes you to see how all appearances are in fact arising as displays of your own pristine awareness, as displays of the compassion of all the Buddhas, empty of nature, luminous in their manifest nature. Right? So that's a difference between the dream yoga exercising. But of course the exercising of that is to really realize the emptiness of inherent nature of everything in the dream. But if you're resting in a rikpa, you've already covered that. Right? So you don't need to experiment. If you're viewing reality from pristine awareness, you know that all these appearances are empty, because that's just what you know from that perspective. Final point in dream yoga, normally I speak a lot more about it than I have during this retreat, and I think probably all the past eight-week retreats I've elaborated on it much more, Um, but I just felt we had our hands full in this one, and that all the dream yoga insights will come out of this practice, even if you don't practice dream yoga. They come as perks. you know, secondary advantages or whatever. But the culmination of the Dream Yoga practice as a dreaming being a platform for waking up to your actual nature is after you've done this, you've become lucid, you've sustained your lucidity, you've transformed and emanated and you've gone to pure lands and received teachings from Amitabha and so forth. All right, good, you've really made good use of that phenomenal reality, right? And then what do you do? Then you simply visualize a pearl of light at your heart, you let the whole, the whole of the dreamscape dissolve, which will do very rapidly. You rest there, and you go right into the substrate, and the whole idea is cut through the substrate and realize rikpa. Cut through. And then that's a way to identify rikpa from the platform of a dream, rather than from a platform of waking experience. Go to the substrate, you're, poetically speaking, right next door to pristine awareness, the substrate's right next door to the Dharmadhatu. Of course, it's a silly metaphor, but that's as close as I can do. And so that's the culmination of dream yoga practice. To realize the emptiness of the dream and everything in the dream, including yourself, dissolve the dream into emptiness, dissolve your mind into the substrate consciousness, and then cut through and realize the emptiness of your own awareness, and cut through right down to rikpā, and that's the end of your dream yoga practice. Congratulations, you're now ready to go into bona fide Dzogchen practice. That's the sequence. I just find it stunningly brilliant. I mean, inexpressibly brilliant. Mm-hmm. So, so, final point, just musing, because this Lama Karmagyumaramache, just, a, well, I, I've never met a more pure monk. I never, truly, a Gelong bhikshu, he said his highest priority was to never, it was really interesting, he said his highest priority was to never tarnish his monastic precepts. Really strict, beautiful monk, pure monk. And Of course, he's also Dzogchen practitioner, a generation completion practitioner, a real practitioner. But boy, he cherished like a wish-filling jewel, his monastic ordination, which I profoundly revere. Such a pure monk. I, I got to know his interpreter, Bhutanese fellow. He's been with him for years, and he said, this lama, he said, I've met many, many lamas. He's born in Bhutan, and he's fluent English, and fluent all the dialects. The guy is a fantastic interpreter. And he told me, we became friends, such a fine man, loves up. he lives in Canada, and he told me, I met a lot, a lot of lamas but this one, there is no difference when he's teaching, he's on the Dharma throne, and he does everything else. It's homogeneous, equal purity. He never, he never, he's never off. He's always in the same mode, always pure, always just like that. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Now this Lama, was, when he was invited by another Nema who lives in on the west coast of the United States, Oregon. Uh, he was invited because this Lama, mm, in living in Oregon, mm. who actually came from Tibet, he didn't spend much time in India. Uh, he said, you know, in this modern world, I think we really need, we, we Tibetans, Lamas, we really need to start showing to the world cities. Start to make that public. Not just say, oh, no, we won't, or no, I don't have it, or no, no, I know, you know, the scientists, the engineers, the technologists, they have no problem showing their cities. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg or something like that, you know, Facebook, Zuckerberg. He now wants to, he came out with some article a day or two ago, I didn't even read it, but I'm sure a lot of people did, that th- uh, he's got some app to develop clairvoyance by way of the internet. <laughs> I, th- I thought I already had that, but I get apparently there's something more, <laughs> you know. And so, I mean, it's fantastic technology. I'm, I enjoy it, I, I, I love it. You know, I love the internet. Uh, but no, he's really thinking now, you know, in the not too distant future we'll be able to communicate with each other even without the technology, because we'll have a technology that transcends technology. Something like that. I didn't read it, as I said. But you know, the point is something very obvious and not a criticism at all, that all of the the knowledge that can be transformed in technology from modern science is being, and you can at least watch it on television, and if you can afford it, you can have it, and you just hit on you know, and install the software and away you go, and now you, you know, you have clairaudience, you have clairvoyance, you, you know, hold up your cell phone, I mean, this is pretty cool. Um, well, if there are, in fact, if there are, if, if there's more than one mode of knowing knowing reality, in ways that have practical applications, science and technology is everywhere, and everybody knows it, and it's incredibly persuasive. I mean, cell phones, airplanes, you know, the whole thing, cars, uh, if there's another viable, profound mode of exploring and knowing the nature of reality that has profound transformative effects, benefits, practical benefits, including demonstrating that you have profound insight into the very nature of physical reality, and not just that you're very compassionate and sweet and kind and generous, but in fact you have such deep insight into the nature of physical reality that you can demonstrate you know, by putting a stone in your mouth and heating it up to a thousand degrees and melting people's skin, you know, like that. Or Yangtanabachi, i think I mentioned—Yontenabchey wrote that he saw his own guru manifesting rainbow body when he died. He saw it. He said, "I saw it myself." He's one of hundreds, but this is one of my own teacher who saw it himself. And Damala, another of my teachers, one of her, her uncles achieved rainbow body. but not where we live, and not in diaspora, not in Nepal, not in India, not in Sikkim, not in Bhutan, not recently. So, we're kind of moving in the, in the, in a trajectory that is, the more distant it gets and that old generation of lamas passes away, we'll start be saying, in the old days, a long time ago, in a place far away, and after a while you can't tell whether you're talking about the Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, or Tibet. You know, in some really magical kingdom, they could have rainbow body and they flew and they, uh, you know, Sakunrabhuj's father, his friend flew over the river to have tea with him and so forth. But degrees of separation. It starts very rapidly in our very rightly skeptical world. We should be skeptical to say, yeah, what have you done for us lately? <laughs> you know that old phrase, what have you done lately? That's very, you know, I don't think you're a liar. You may be awfully gullible, though. Have you seen this yourself? Who do you know who's seen it? I can say, well, I haven't seen Roy Melbody, but my teacher has, and another teacher, her uncle, has. That's not too many, not too much separation. But then if you say, my teacher has a teacher who's seen, and you have students, and they say, my teacher has a teacher who has a teacher. In a land far away, they saw something you cannot believe. You don't believe it, do you? I didn't either. So, Lama Lama Kamagyuram, which he said, we have to start, he agreed, he agreed not only to show his abilities in the West, but why I was even notified about it, because I'm not a disciple of this Lama in Oregon. And he invited only his his own disciples to meet this Lama and receive the healing. He invited me because uh, he knew that I'm kind of one of the Western Dharma teachers, has big connection with science. So he wrote me like a week before the Lama came. He came to Vancouver, British Columbia, and he said, Alan, if you know any scientists who like to watch this with their own eyes and do any experiments or studies they wish, anything, to show that this, you know, to, to, so that we can see this is not a trick. Bring all of your technology to show this. there's no trick, this is not an illusion. This guy really is doing this, you know, and he's actually healing people. Uh, if they can come quickly, then please invite them, because this is willing to do this publicly and have it scientifically monitored, right? Well, it was like a five days before he was coming, and so I wrote to a number of old-minded scientists, I know, I know a number, and yeah, they just couldn't. It wasn't like they were in denial or, no, I won't do it, no, nothing like that. They're busy. They just couldn't drop everything in five days and go and see this lama, And so we didn't have much advance notice, which is actually very common with these highly realized. Beings, you you know, they're acting very spontaneously. It's hard to plan ahead with people like that. Maybe it's, maybe it's time for those of us raised in modernity to, I'm going to be really rude, stop being parasitic. My Lama is this. My Lama's Lama is this. My the Tibetan, this, 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 they have, you know, my Lama spent 20 years in retreat. He spent 10 years in retreat. He can do this city. And I have so much devotion. That's very fine. That's good, good for you. But until we have people, and I'm not gonna use the word West, because there are people from Asian background here. I've taught people from India, from Mongolia, from Singapore, you know, all of the, it's not a matter of skin color or which hemisphere you're born in east or west or whatever, it's not, that's kind of irrelevant at this point. I just, I it all blurs to me. West, 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 I've mentioned that before. It's really us moderners, not even Eurocentric necessarily, born recently in Mongolia, born recently in Singapore, born recently in Bangkok, born recently, but people who have been through the, through the gauntlet are getting beaten by modernity you know, with all of its overtones of materialism and so forth and so on. And here we are, our minds all scrambled up with ADHD and low self-esteem and all the stuff we're so familiar with. So the real question is, can people like us, who, where the lotus is growing out of this mud, the mud of modernity, and I think it's a really good metaphor, it's mud of modernity, it's mud in your eye, there's so much delusion, so much ignorance, so much absurdity, coming especially out of materialism. But it's also fertile mud, lots of nutrients, right? That's, and the lotus comes from that, right? We're the lotus family. So if we can be born in the mud of modernity, of materialism and sometimes really quite crude interpretations of religion, which happens a lot everywhere, and all that we're so familiar with, if we can be born here, emerge from this, and a pe- the likes of us from europe north south america from southeast asia from australia and so on from india modern indians they're like us you know they got europe they got british style education filtered through india but it's still very british psychology in india is more or less like psychology in 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 wales there's hardly any indian out of it. they strained it all out western cognitive imperialism throughout 5,000 years of Indians exploring the mind, and they get this reductionistic approach from, in, from England, and from Europe. It's really quite sad. You know, the people who know almost nothing about the nature of consciousness and the actual nature of mind, trumping a whole 5,000 year old civilization where they've been fathoming things right down to the depths, and that's what you get in the University of Delhi. The Western version, completely concealing 5,000 years of insights of the Hindus, the Jains, the Sikhs, the the Sufis, the Buddhists, the Theravadans, the Mahayanas, the Vajrayans, they all get gagged and they're hearing about, let's bring in the rats, we need to study behavior, you know. So that's kind of like, bothers me a little bit. (laughs) You may have noticed once in a while, it rubs me the wrong way. (laughs) But you know, The scientists and technologists, they they show the benefits, and the benefits are very significant in medicine, transportation, and so forth. And so Lama Kamigyavanapache, the Lama in Oregon, saying, you know, it's time to start showing. But are we going to continue to rely on people who are born in Tibet, outside our matrix, who look like they're extraterrestrials? seem to be so distant, so separate, so unlike ourselves. And on top of that, they're tukus, they're their they're emanations of this great Lama and this great emanation. They're Avalokiteshvara, Vajrapani, Vimalamitra, and so forth. They look fundamentally like a totally different species. And so if they display cities, you say, well, yeah, but you're, you're an emanation of, you know, Jamba, you're an emanation of Vimalamitra, you're an emanation, of, yeah, why wouldn't you be? I mean, but I'm an emanation of a Turtle, You know, an emanation of a sentient being. I'm still one. So, once again, this big divide, right? If you were born as an emanation, the seventh seventh emanation of some great being who achieved enlightenment 500 years ago, and you should display a city, that's really cool, but then you're so unlike me. So I think that is the challenge for people really dedicated to this path. If we're not up for it, then what are you going to tell the children? That somebody two or three generations away from you, they could do things that you find totally unbelievable. But believe me, right? How persuasive is that? Because in Tibet, until very recently. They didn't have to, I mean, it's lovely to talk about stories of Nalarepa, but then they could talk about, oh yeah, and this guy over, you know, 50, 50 kilometers to the west, he just achieved rainbow body. And it was like three months ago. That was true until very recently. So it didn't take a stretch of imagination to believe in the cities. It took a stretch of imagination to not believe them. What are you, just plain stupid? You just, where do you live? What part of Tibet do you live that's such a black hole that you didn't, ever come in contact with it. And basically there weren't any black holes. Tibetans it believed in this like we believe in telephones. You know, pretty much same. So it really comes back to this. It's now. Now is the time. Historically speaking, this is an unprecedented time. It's kind of, I can't say now or never, what do I know? But the old ones, like Yangtana Rinpoche, like Gyacar Rinpoche, who pretty much doesn't teach anymore. This Holiness is 80, and so many of the great ones, most of them my lamas have passed away. Boy, if this, if, if now's not the time, But I don't know when would be the time. And the stakes couldn't be higher, could they? Am I exaggerating here? Am I going to go all crazy here, California crazy guy? Or is this really a time of a um, tremendous urgency to get our act together, and if, under the guidance of the great beings, such as Gyavakamapa, and his Honolulu Dalai Lama, and, and oh, other great lamas who are still alive and well with us, under their close guidance, absolutely close guidance, if we achieve cities, then consult with the great lamas and say, is it beneficial to re- reveal these, and if so, under what conditions? So you don't have any ego involved at all. No showing off, no look at me. This is purely for the benefit of dharma, but the the sentient beings. So, something like that. Oh, that's so. So here's what I like. I didn't think it was going to go on this long, but I think this is all very meaningful. I think so. And so we'll just do our devotions, and what I would suggest for this morning is completely unite the teachings from the afternoon on practice, that whole notion of when you're resting in rikpa never being parted from the immutable joy, bliss of rikpā, which is completely devoid of suffering. As That's what we're seeking to practice here. Then arise with pure vision and wish this for all beings. There's your great mudita, but then from that perspective resolve, I shall do it. So this is all one dharma talk, isn't it? I shall do it. I shall do it. I'm not going to rely on this person. Oh, he's younger, and, and, and he's smarter, and she ha- she's, she's financially independent, and, and he has a really good teacher. And, uh, everybody wants to pass the buck. It's so easy. Pass the buck means uh, somebody else will do it, I'm sure. Somebody else will take care of it, like global warming. I don't need to do anything about it. You know, somebody else will do it, you know, not having that attitude, but really that resolve. Okay, if not you, You are, after all, in the center of your mandala. Do you want to abdicate, want to get off the throne and give your place to somebody else? You can't do it. You're irreplaceably in the center of your mandala. Sorry, the Dalai Lama can't fill your place. Nobody else can fill your place. You're it, tag. That's your mandala, look in all directions around you. That's your mandala. If you're not gonna take responsibility, you think somebody else is gonna take it for you? They're in the center of their mandala, right? They either do or do not take responsibility for that, and do the, all they can. But that's their business, but you are, each of us is, in the center of mandala. It's an empty center, but still, there it is, that's the center. And so, practice, practice. Yeah. Ola Let's just do the devotions, and that will be it for the morning. Namo Lama Ndeshe Ku Kunjo Datan Ranjinnam Dattandodup Nam Janju Badu Kyapsu Chi Namo In the Lama who is the embodiment of the Sugatas, of the nature of the Three Jewels, I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semke doa kundundundu lama sangye dukne ni. Kangla kandu tinle ki doa damcho. For the sake of all beings I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. Ong-o-gi-yukin gye la yang senator chokim odum ye bhe ma ta ke ki je Guru Pema Siddhi Hoom. Hoom. In the northwest frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city and is surrounded by a host of many dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Pema Siddhi Hoom. Go to Pema City Home. So let's continue practicing through the day as continuously as possible, resting awareness in its own stillness and viewing reality from that perspective. And enjoy your day.